Uh, we're glad to have you with us uh, today. Let me pray for Luke as we get started. Uh, Lord, would you be with us today? Would you be with Luke as he uh, teaches from your word? Lord, as we learn about this uh, story that has been written from uh, before time, Lord, and uh, we ask that you would open our eyes, Lord, uh, to this particular chapter. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and good morning. I'd like you to refer to your notes as we go along. I think it'll be a help. But what we're doing in this series, this is, uh, as Corey said, the story of everything. Uh, the story that the Bible gives us, that the God of the Bible gives us as to who we are and what we're about. And I think it's so important to get as clear as we can an overview of that story because um, it helps us to understand what it is that we believe and why we believe it. It's so important to have the information what, but it's also so crucial to know why we believe what we believe. And so what we're doing is trying to, to describe the Christian worldview. Okay? And what I've got down here, I uh, took it from a, a work by a couple of people, on what worldview is, just these uh, you know, five different aspects of developing a worldview. Because every one of us, every one of us, whether you acknowledge it or think it through or have thought it through, everybody in here and everybody out there operates under a worldview. Now, you receive this worldview. Uh, most of us, all of us, most all of us do from parents. We get an idea of what this world's like, who we are, where our place in it. And then we go on to either uh, adopt that worldview, maybe we modify it some, maybe there are all kinds of things that could happen. But basically you can boil a worldview down to these five um, ingredients. One, where are we? These questions must be answered by everybody. Two, who are we? Three, what's wrong? Four, what's the solution? And five, what time is it? Okay? So let's begin to look. That's what we're going to be doing on this overview these next, these, these, these weeks that we're here um, answering and talking about the Christian worldview. We looked a little bit on, on where are we and who are we last week. We found that the Bible tells us that we are in a world that was made good. We are in a world, a planet, seas, land, sky, created by God. Not the product of impersonal forces. Not the product in the ancient Near East they had... Um, other gods, other religions, and they talked, they had origin stories too. But they were mostly grouped under that this world was the product of warring gods. And basically this is what's left over from that war, and we are the leftovers from it, splinters away from these, splinters that have been splintered off from these warring gods. So subject to their whim, subject to fates, subject to the howling uh, necessities of nature. But no, this is another take on what happened. And this comes from 
the one who claims to be the God and the creator of the universe. Power, in that case, for the ancients, power in those pagan gods battling, power would be the structure beneath this universe, which might be a pretty terrible thing if you were on the wrong side of that power's wishes. But what we hear from scripture is that a loving creator created this world. And he made this world good, even very good as God looks over his creation. And in opposition to the chaos that seems to rule and is a vital ingredient in pagan religions, chaos, it's all chaos, so why would you even worry about trying to understand the universe because it makes no sense. That's why, for instance, experimental science uh, rose in the West, not in the East. Think about it. In the East, under the guidance of those world religions and those worldviews, if the world is basically chaos, why, why experiment? Why, why look into? Why ask questions? Why imagine that there are questions that could be answered? Okay? So we have opposing worldviews. But the Bible's worldview is that we're part of a wonderful creation. So that where we are and who are we, we are the capstone of God's creation, made in God's image in his likeness. But unfortunately, I get to talk about number three. <laughs> What's wrong? What's wrong? And here we are. Let's look at the images of Genesis 1 and 2. By this point, the garden has been created from the chaos, from the wasteland. And think about this. This, this is something that is kind of basic to understanding because we're, we're talking about a, a whole different culture, different from us. They're instructing us about the world in Genesis. And if we have some difficulties with it, sometimes it's a clash of our cultures. Because think of this. They have this narrow strip of land in, in what we call the Holy Land, the ancient Near East, this, this strip of land. And to their west is the sea, which represented for them chaos. And to their east was desert, wasteland, all this kind, all this stuff. But in between there was this land that was that they, they could work and, and, and beautify and turn into a place that's hospitable. And so they talk about uh, from the chaos and from the wasteland, there was a garden made. And now we have out of the chaos and out of the harsh wasteland, from no order, from no inhabitants, God creates three orders or three realms, the sky, the land, and the seas. He fills them with creatures. This is Genesis 1 and 2. Finally, he creates in his image human beings. He blesses them. And he gives them a role as his own agents in this world to care for, to tend, to protect these realms. That's who we are. And up to now in this story, God has provided and defined what is good. And the first humans totally trust 
God's provision. God defines what is good and what is evil. Represented in the garden is a tree, in the middle of that garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens next is God gives the humans the dignity and freedom to choose to trust God and to choose to trust his definition of good and evil. You know what happens next. Into that garden, and by the way, if Adam had protected and done his job, perhaps that serpent wouldn't be there. And now in the immortal words of Indiana Jones, why did it have to be snakes? (laughs) I hate snakes. But a serpent comes into the garden, a rebellious serpent. He's a creation of God. He's not equal with God. He's a created, he's, he's a creature, but he's rebellious. He desires to drag the humans in this garden and the garden itself back into chaos and waste. And the serpent meets up with these humans near the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent counters that eating from this tree will bring life. Not not death, not separation from God. It will actually bring life, their own life, that they can craft as they wish, and they will even become like God if they eat from this forbidden tree. It's so, it's so tragic. They come to think that God cannot be trusted. And the idea that they might be gods unto themselves, that they could take the place of God, it takes hold of them. They are incited by this serpent. They seize autonomy for themselves. And when I say autonomy, what do I mean? It means self-rule. They become law unto themselves. And what follows from that? What follows from their seizing this autonomy? They begin to unravel. It's noted in Genesis 3, where all this takes place, where this is recorded about what happened in the garden. That they were unclothed and were unashamed, but now they start to hide from each other. They hide from God. They basically can't trust each other anymore because each one now assumes that they can for themselves define what is good and what is evil. And so they begin to unravel. Not only personally, yes, they begin to fall apart themselves, but they, they begin to fall apart as a couple as a family. So the family begins to fall apart. Chaos, darkness descends. Disease, decay, frustrating toil, alienation, and death enter. God comes looking for them, asking them, why are you hiding? What have you done? And here is another clue, 
tragic clue of their fallenness. They blame shift. Remember, Adam says, well, it was this woman that you gave me, by the way. She did it. And what does Eve say? Well, there's this, this serpent, by the way, that you made. He, he led me away. They blame shift. And so humans now are in this awful mess of betrayal toward each other, toward God. They blame shift. They imagine that, that something else or somebody else is to blame for my condition. So they're expelled. They're expelled from the garden and they're prevented from returning. So let's go back to our worldview points. Number one, where are we? It is so important for you and me to know that basic answer. Where are we? We are east of Eden, aren't we? We're not in the garden. And this world is beautiful, but beautiful things will happen in this world to you and me. Terrible things will happen to you and me. This is a world, as John Lennox has described it, of beauty and barbed wire. Now, bringing it down just to, to basic everyday life. I saw this wonderful quote by um, an archbishop in, in, the, in our church uh, uh, back in the 20th century, Archbishop William Temple. He says this, and you and I experience this. This is, this is our experience. He says this, when we open our eyes as babies, we see the world stretching out around us. We're in the middle of it. I am the center of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Some things hurt us. We hope they will not happen again. We call them good. Some things please us. We hope they will happen again. We call them good. Sometimes we don't like, we call it bad. Sorry, that's our standard of value is the way the things affect ourselves. So each of us takes his or her place in the center of our own world. But I am not the center of the world or the standard of reference as between good and bad. I am not. And God is. That is the place we find ourselves. Where are we east of Eden? Who are we? Fallen, rebellious creatures. And it's not simply that this fallen world with all the things that happen. I mean, we've just come through a devastating storm. And there will be more to come. And this world has gone through devastating droughts, devastating diseases. You know, I th we thought of, we were trying to think, uh, I was trying to think early in the week, what's a good illustration on these notes that I could give for this, what we're talking about? Well, all, all you really need is this. Okay, this is, the, this is the best one. This is a wonderful uh, uh, story about Dale Gandy. She survived best breast cancer twice, but why is there cancer? Here's a picture of the devastation in Florida. So many lives lost. And I heard this morning, just this morning, that in Indonesia, over the weekend there was a, a soccer match 
and fights broke out in that stadium in, in Indonesia. And uh, as the brawls continued, uh, the police came in and tear gas was sprayed and there was panic and uh, it turned out that they, they went, everybody crowded to an exit and over 170 people were killed. This is a world where things like that happen. But let me ask you this, it, at this point, a worldview that's worth its salt, wouldn't it give you the best account taking into account the evidence of what we see all around us. That's why I'd say the Christian worldview and the biblical worldview gives us an accurate read on who we are and what's wrong. See, it's not just outward things that happen to, happen to us. We ourselves, our hearts, our motives even, Deep down in the core of us are mixed and we are rebellious creatures. We do not want God. We want to rule the world ourselves. Now, I mean, th this is awful news and this is an awful situation. Sometimes, you know, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, I usually get kind of sarcastic and I, I try to laugh about it because I don't know what to do. I'm in the same boat as everybody. So I go for comfort to uh, different sources. This is uh, Jack Handy, who's a comedian. He wrote a lot for Saturday Night Live, and he did uh, his, his thing was Deep Thoughts. I don't know if you ever remember him, but let me give you a couple of his quotes. He says, I can picture in my mind a world without war, a world without hate. And I can picture us attacking that world because they'd never expect it. And then he, said, he says this, before you criticize someone, walk a mile in their shoes. That way you'll be a, a mile away from them and you'll have their shoes. <laughs> but I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that just describe us? Doesn't that describe us? I mean, we are, we imagine that we can uh, rule the world ourselves and that we are the standard and that in, in fact our culture, we're in a such a dangerous time because we have this growing cultural sense that we must be seen as people who must express ourselves, who must be the center of everything. And yes, we must all be gods, and of course we are. And our whole life and reason, our whole worldview is to express ourselves. And reality will alter around us to conform to our wishes and desires. Would that be so? But we're not. We can say more and more will be said as we go um, into the weeks to come. When I got to it all, you know, I, it, it's just, it's, it's so awful. I, I, I put it down at the bottom, it's all lost. Well, no, uh, no. And so it's very important to understand what time it is as well as the solution. And we're gonna discuss that as we go on. But I'll leave you with this. Um, at the turn of the century, there's a wonderful theologian and uh, writer, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, the writings of C.S. Lewis introduced me to, to him because for Lewis, G.K. Chesterton was a great uh, mentor in his day. And Chesterton, uh, a British uh, theologian and, and, and wonderful writer, read his stuff, it's amazing. But the London Times, 
put up a contest. It was in 1908. And they contacted influential people around the world and they asked them, we're going to have a contest and the, what we want you to do is, is send us in an essay and the title of, the, of what you're to write is, on is, what's wrong with the world? Send us in our essay, we'll, we'll tell you the, ones, the one who, who does the best job. Well, G.K. Chesterton wrote one into the editor of the London Times and here's what he wrote. Dear sirs, with regard to the question, what is wrong with the world? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. If that's the situation, and the Bible accurately describes who we are and what we are, where we are, and what's wrong with us, there better be a daggum good solution to this. Because the solution is not going to come from within us. It's not going to come by me or you or anybody else. It comes from something or someone outside of us. And thank God we have a lot to say about that. Thanks. Comments too, because um, I may not know what the heck to say to you if you have a question. One, one further note: just as you look on this sheet, uh, the sheet, the bottom of the sheet provides the homework for the week. Uh, the homework is the idea of these of these four, six sessions is not just information, but participation. By our learning more about our place in the world and the story of God, we better be able to live within that story. And so the homework assignments are miniature exercises in participating in that story. Ways that you, by yourself or with your family, can live into the truths we've talked about. So this week's homework assignment is to apologize. And it's to apologize to someone you wouldn't normally apologize to. The idea is that if sin is our claiming of the right over and against what God says is right, when we sin, uh, it hurts, it, it rejects God, it hurts ourselves, and it hurts another. So apology is a, is a means of participating in that truth of what sin is and what it does. And it offers the opportunity for forgiveness, which we'll begin to talk about next week. But that's, that's the only thing. Ooh, ooh, I know something. I know something. Can I say, no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I, I, I want to tell you something real quick. That, um, there are all kinds of ways that I've learned uh, what a sinful creature I am. Uh, one of the things up in Virginia, we were doing a, um, a big production for us at, at Epiphany Church on uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. We, were, we had props and sets and were going to act it out and had kids and adults in there and everything. We had sound system and we did it for uh, six weeks. And um, everything was going well. And there was a, a crucial point in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Are you familiar with that C.S. Lewis story? Well, this was when Aslan was, the lion was killed on the stone table. And so it was a very dramatic, very heavy uh, moment for us. And what we had 
brought in, we had people with all kind of gifts doing that. We did this whole thing ourselves. And um, we had a, a, a 14 year old who could sing incredibly and so we brought her in and we had her at that moment when the the children Lucy and Susan were grieving that Aslan had died and this girl came in and sang this wonderful song well it was all set up and there was so much on the line so excited about it I, I, I would stand up at the like here and announce it and then we'd do the play and then I'd we'd do you know send people different places and um Right at that moment, and of course I had this uh, lapel mic, the you know, on, and you know, we got to the point where this, you know, we act this thing out, and there's a hush in the crowd, and then this girl, she stands up and she begins to sing. Well, the sound system at that point just went crazy. All this static, all this noise, and I mean, people were holding their ears, and she was trying to sing the song, and it was just, like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. This is ruined, this is ruined. And all I could think of was, wait till I get hold of Bob. Bob was working the soundboard in the back. And I mean, I'm just horrified, I just think, all this work. And so I run back there after it's done, and I want to strangle him. And I'm thinking all these thoughts about how I'm going to be really nice, I'm going to hold back my fire, but I just, I really want to just send him into the next, into next week. And I get him and I say, Bob, Bob, you, all you had to do was push some buttons. Why, why at that moment did things go so terrible? Why, why, were you just looking away? I mean, we've all worked so hard. That at least was a gist of what I said. And um, uh, Bob turned to me and he was, he was, just shaking his head and he was looking down and he said, Luke, um, yeah, I was trying to fix it, but um, unfortunately there was a lapel mic that was left on and um, it was up near the speakers and it created all the feedback and I'm so sorry. And I realized it was my, my microphone. I left it on, I'd forgotten to turn it off. And so I loosened my grip on Bob's neck, and uh, I've been apologizing ever since. But there we go. We've met the enemy, and he is us. So. <laughs>